0: Welcome to Techno Roll, a special Let It Roll Maxi series discussing Michelangelo Matos' book, The Underground is Massive, How Electronic Dance Music Conquered America, hosted by Nate Wilcox and Ryan Harkness. Let It Roll is the insanely ambitious musical history podcast. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip hop, disco, and electronic dance music, and now heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll Podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at Let It Roll Let It Roll is a Pantheon Podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. Today Nate and Ryan discuss the turn of the millennium, 9-11, mashups, electro-clash, and the era when Vice Magazine laid down the laws of hipsterdom. Email us at let it roll podcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and
1: enjoy. It's time to let it roll, or shall I say techno roll. That's right. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox. Joined once again by Ryan Harkness to continue our discussion of The Underground is Massive, How Electronic Dance Music Conquered America. And Ryan, we've left the 20th century behind. We're entering a decade. Some of us are trying to call the naughties. Yeah, it's uh, the first. Well,
2: not the first, but it's like now we're getting into the 2000s. And of course, we got to start with the big bummer that is 9-11, which happens kind of right in the middle of this episode and just bums everything out.
1: Yep. Although there's plenty of other things to be bummed about, too. I'm not going to bag on this stuff. I've actually enjoyed the listening for this show quite a bit. But I have to admit, a lot of painful memories come back when I think about this era that are totally tied in to this music.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's a time of churn. Uh, Rave is on a downslide. Rave has gone completely underground and insular. Club music has gone completely plastic. The whole thing is wannabe corporate. Uh, with cell phone and liquor sponsorships and everybody trying to get that money. There, there's, you know, the scene, there, there's no more society, as Margaret Thatcher said. We're, we're done with that. It's all people looking to be uh, standout individuals. So it's a bit of a confusing time for sure for the scene.
1: Yep. And a lot of big technological things are happening. And, and Mato starts the chapter with a discussion uh, or an anecdote of Josh Wink getting caught DJing with no records. And Josh Glazer, who's the witness of that, is like, really? So there's new technology out there that is um, letting people, letting DJs replace their vinyl records, which vinyl survived all the way through the 90s. In retrospect, it's really kind of amazing that vinyl, analog vinyl technology was the dominant form for dance floor mixing that long.
2: Yeah, I mean there was just nothing else. I mean, uh, I think the book mentioned that the uh the the Pioneer DJ 1000 came out basically in like 2000, 2001 and uh that was when the tipping point kind of happened, but it was still very slow because let me tell you what, as a person who played CDs, uh you got a lot of crap for it. Uh if you weren't playing on turntables, people just got used to the idea of turntables being cool. So all of a sudden you show up with uh with a rack mount CDJ and people were not impressed.
1: And even less impressive was laptops when people started DJing with those and there was new technology. Um, Let's see, what is Ableton was the was the software that came out and and allowed DJs to mix right there on their laptops or play stuff. Um, They'd already recorded and check their email while everybody's rocking on the dance floor. Yeah, there was there were people who
2: could really rock a show with with Final Scratch or Ableton. And then there was a lot of people who were just using it uh because they, you know, had no comfort outside of a computer setup. So there there was, you know, there was a, a big reputation for laptop DJs to be boring. And that's because a lot of them were. We've kind of gone past that now at this point. But, you know, even now you'll go to events and you'll still see people who are like, you know, just staring at a screen blankly rather than interacting with the crowd or, you know, getting, you know, picking up the vibe.
1: Yeah. And and Matos does have an interesting anecdote that uh, John Aquaviva and Richie Houghton of Plus 8 Records um, Aquaviva was the one who first got into it. That he, uh, in early 2001, recorded a mix CD using club monitors and a laptop. that He was actually using a DJ, and that was, you know, um, a secret. But Jay Gla- Josh Glazer likes it. Comes up to him and I was like, "I know your secret." And Aquaviva was like, "You want to try it?" He was he was an evangelist. It turns out he was an investor. Final Scratch was the the tool he was using. It was first developed in Amsterdam in 1999 aqua viva heard about it flew over there and invested and then final scratch hits the market in january 2002 um and then Richie hodden releases a whole album de9 colon closer to the edit that's quote a mix album featuring more than 70 tracks broken down into 300 loops each one to four bars long arranged into 53 continuous minutes like listening to it to me it sounds like sort of uh an intelligent techno or intelligent drum and bass style record explain what's going on here why is this some sort of technical breakthrough
2: uh well it's basically instead of just having individual tracks that you're trying to kind of do uh interesting uh you know uh, transitions with all of a sudden you're able to take these tracks and break them down into specific loops from specific sections and with Ableton it's designed explicitly so that you can drop all of these into one button press uh loops so at any point in time you can you can have five or six different loops going from five or six different tracks it just completely opens the door to uh complete flexibility and of course is that flexibility actually necessary you know a lot of these producers spend a lot of time uh painstakingly perfecting these tracks only to have a dJ play half a minute of it before mixing it out, or now just you know taking one loop, putting it into Ableton and running it for five minutes with like three other tracks so it's uh, it's, 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 it's controversy you know and as as you could tell from reading the chapter, there's a lot of suspicion from everybody that catch it, quote unquote catches anybody doing anything other than playing vinyl because up until this point, the expectation is if you have a computer or a CD hooked up to this thing, then you've just pressed play and that's it
1: and so was the idea Was Houghton's idea that this would empower DJs who were using Ableton to manipulate his tracks with more flexibility off this record? You know, you, the, uh, the the DJ
2: or the producer never wants their tracks to be the ones that are manipulated typically, you know, <laughs> so that, that's the whole thing, but it does offer a whole, a whole other level of control. You know, Houghton, I think was at his peak when he was kind of messing around like this, his Dex Effects and 909s had a, was, was a step towards this. And this was like about as close as he ever got to what you could consider live remixing. And again, it's just uh it's kind of a different way of playing. It's a different result and whether or not you're into that or not uh you know depends on on your personal taste
1: is it fair to say that richie houghton has had one of the most consistently productive and innovative careers of any dj in the 90s because we've been talking about him for episode i mean ever since the second wave of detroit techno and it seems like he is continuing to innovate and come up in these narratives for good reason whereas you know you compare him with somebody like um Aphex twin who maybe had two or three phases, but then kind of fades away into his own little cul-de-sac. Is that is that unfair? Yeah.
2: Well, I mean, uh, you know, it's competition too. Like this is a book on the American rave scene, and Richie Houghton was definitely one of the most American. innovative guys in in North America doing all this stuff. And he was definitely pushing pushing things from you know 95 to 2005 and now he's now he's kind of settled down a little bit but yeah he was definitely right on the forefront of of a lot of the exciting things going on for you know over a decade
1: and i'm going to play our first song and i'm going to switch the order actually because what we're about to talk about is this next song this is kid 606 a cat step my kitten catnap vatst what's the name of the song
2: yeah yeah that's it
1: okay all right kid 606 cat step my kitten cat nap vaxed. kid 606 cat step my kitten catnap vats, and kid 606 comes into our narrative while matos is talking about ableton because this is a period where you could replace the sampler with your laptop and the laptop becomes an audio player but that causes this the stuff made on laptops has this new sound it's kind of a crisp, computery flutter. And sometimes there are little sound problems and there are little glitches in the Matrix that quickly becomes its own style. There's the Tiger Beat 6 label from San Francisco. And this guy, Miguel de Pedro, a.k.a. Kid 606, um, is the avatar of this little scene. Tell us why you picked that track, or did I already spoil your whole thing?
2: I mean, you kind of did. I mean, it's uh, I, I picked that specific one because it kind of embodies what Kid 606 was doing. Uh, the book labels it glitch. It's also kind of break core, and the, the, the key element to take away from it is that it's it took – kind of some of the quote-unquote more intelligent drum and bass uh, artistic kind of experimental stuff and just started having fun with it again i mean you hear that track and it's ridiculous and i think the whole point of everything that kid 606 was doing was that he was uh you know pulling pulling intelligent drum and bass's head out of its ass again and just throwing the rule book in the garbage too so it was it was a lot of really strange stuff going on that kid 606 was was pushing and experimenting with which is you know and and just a, a repudiation of of being too serious about everything
1: yeah and we've seen uh some of this sort of humorous stuff coming out and and some of the stuff we talked about in the detroit episode some of the stuff that was coming out of detroit around that time is very tongue-in-cheek i'm thinking of sandwiches of course um and it's also interesting to compare the way Reynolds talked about Kid 606 and and this glitch break core scene versus the way Matos kind of just tucks it in here in this technological discussion and doesn't make too big a deal of it. Reynolds, it seemed like, was riding closer to the time. And not to disparage the great Simon Reynolds, but I think he has a bit of shiny object syndrome where when somebody does something that's new and interesting to him, he's prone to maybe making more of a big deal out of it than it ultimately merits.
2: Well, you know, you spend enough time in electronic music. Anytime a purple cow comes along, it's very exciting uh, (laughs) because I I think that's the story of, of 2000, 2001, is that at this point. People are sick of you know – they're sick of house. They're sick of trance. They're sick of techno. Something has to give. Everything is kind of just boiled down to its most uh, – boiled down to the most extreme rule sets possible. We're all straight ja- in straight jackets now and these people have to come along and start shaking things up with both Glitch breakcore Core and with Electro.
1: Yep. And and we'll talk about Electro a lot more later, but now we're going to talk about the mashups. And this is something that's been going on since the eighties. I mean, you had people um like Negative Land and Evolution Control Committee, uh Jive you know, Bunny and the Master Mixers. Yep. All all kinds of people were were the plunder phonic style or sample delica, you know, made a big splash in the eighties. Um and then Sort of faded, but in the early 2000s, the technology had reached a point. There's tons of hip-hop artists. It's kind of become de rigueur for hip-hop artists to put out a cappella versions of their stuff, so you can add, you know, Jay Z or whatever rapper to any track. And the technology's gotten better, so it's easier to swipe individual pieces from tracks, even if there are other things playing at the same time. And you can, you know, pitch correct and and speed correct and stuff. So you can blend a lot of things in ways that were not possible before. So you get acts like Too Many DJs, which is David and Stephen Diwalla? I'm not sure. (laughs) I'm not not
2: sure. I I can barely keep up with their their, their artist names, like Too Many DJs, Soul Wax, everything else.
1: Yeah, so they're also known as Soul Wax. And they make a big splash. I mean, this is something that even penetrated my consciousness at the time time was things like magnificent romeo i remember that one in particular that was a a combination of romeo by basement jacks and the magnificent seven by the clash and you know mashups at this point when i see a mashup now it's some boomer on facebook that's found the most of ob- you know like crikey somebody mixed you know I don't know, Slayer and Herb Alpert. This is the craziest. And it's like, is this not the craziest thing you've ever seen? It's a joke I already get. But it's kind of fun to go back and listen to too many DJs. It's actually pretty good music.
2: Yeah, well, the intensity was definitely there. I think what people appreciated about it was was the lack of polish on it. Uh, this was, they we're getting to a point where things got pretty punk rock and it no longer had to be clean and pristine. You were able to go in there and throw together this weird Dolly Parton mashup. The beats didn't quite quite match up perfectly but that was okay because the energy was there and it almost made it better because you could tell that it was being done live
1: yeah and a ton of the energy is coming from these combinations and the way that they would tease snippets from a familiar song then maybe go into the chorus or maybe not you know like oh we thought you know you thought we were going to play salt and pepper's push it but actually we're going to go into the Stooges no fun instead and also it's stuff like listening to long um, uh, you know, their their albums, mixed-length albums, as heard on Radio Soulwax part two is one that Matos recommends to listen to. And, and I went all the way through. Um they bring in a lot of things, a lot of punk rock stuff like the Stooges or the Cramps that had never been massive hits, but had reached a pretty large audience, you know, like in the 35, 40 years at this point since the Stooges had come out, a lot of people were familiar with it. So it's kind of this. Victory, of punk, victory lap for people coming from a punk rock perspective and it fit right in with other things that were going on in this era which included uh, really kind of to me the inexplicable success of the white stripes and the strokes and this school of retro garage rock that's suddenly hip and cool I mean I enjoyed some of that music but uh, it was very strange because rocker fashion and what was actually hip and cool like in gay dance circles had been so far apart for so long. And then all of a sudden, all my gay friends are looking like rockers. And I'm like, you know, what's going on? Are, are rockers hip now or, or or have you guys lost the plot? And so for a while, rockers were hip. It was a weird time. Yeah. And it was I
2: think what was what really stuck out to me was the fact it was like the, the re-realization that rock music could be dance music, you know, like we. We we talk about this a lot with like Northern Soul and stuff where it's like, you know, you could that, that had a really good beat to it and you could really dance to it. I feel like for a long time, rock music, it's just, it was, it, it, people almost told you you had to just stand there at the concert. Maybe you could mosh, but the idea of, of actually getting out and cutting it on the dance floor at a club to, to rock music was was practically verboten so now all of a sudden the flood doors are open again because they're adding you know four to the floor beats to the this rock music and they're bringing the dance and they're bringing the fun back
1: and we'll talk about some of that specifically later but let's go ahead and hear our second song and this is too many djs mashing up dolly parton's nine to five and Roy's Cops. epic or apple apple yeah. apple okay there you go some, some probably
2: some danish something or something around. who knows
1: <laughs> and roy's cops apple this is too many dj's mashing it up many DJs um, from the long form album as heard on Radio Soulwax Part 2. This is a particular snippet combining Dolly Parton's 9 to 5 and Royce Cobb's "Apple." Anything you want to add to that or have I already spoiled your whole? Ah, I, I think we basically kind of covered the general, general concept. All right, cool. And, and yeah, I, I highly recommend it if you want to go back and listen to that stuff. He also mentions Greg Gillis, a.k.a. Girl Talk, um, who... As he, as Mato says, it didn't take long for mashups to become a tedious grind, with Girl Talk eventually running it into the festival circuit ground. Although he does,
2: when he when he was hot, man, Girl Talk was hot, and it was always it's a good true. time. And uh, yeah. you know, I, I still feel like Girl Talk could come out and do that same set at a place that was ready to party. But again, it's you know, after 10 years of of of
1: something existing, it's just not fresh anymore. There's nothing you can do about it. Yeah and Matos does go out of his way to point out that the 2006 album Night Ripper is still a blast and yeah it's just it was a fun idea at the time ultimately yeah got played out like anything else um but then he he talks about another thing that's going on in this period which is this two-way conversation with what's going on in pop and rock and hip-hop and he says if quote if electronic dance music wouldn't cross over to america on its own and we've already had the kind of electronica push with prodigy and chemical brothers and Fatboy slim individually making it big and moby making it very big but edm did not become a dominant form of American popular music, it had these kind of one-off artists that fit into other categories, but but so it says maybe it could become pop's sharpest trace element, and you get things like Madonna's Ray of Light album from 1998, where she works with William Orbit, who is a progressive house guy, co-founder of the Gorilla label. Then on the music album Madonna did in September 2000, she works with Stuart Price, uh, which. And I was confused. So Stuart Price is A.K.A. Jacques Leconte and Le Rhythms Digitales. So is Stuart Price a real person with these other names, or? Is yeah, he- uh, Le Rhythm
2: Digital has Jacques Leconte in it, and Jacques Leconte is Stuart Price.
1: I see. Okay, okay. So at, at the same time, or very close to the same time, October 2000, Radiohead puts out Kid A. Which Matos says is heavily and unmistakably indebted to the Warp catalog, which is, of course, the um, intelligent. base, and bass. Yeah, bleep and bass. The dreaded intelligent techno that Simon Reynolds heaped so much opprobrium on. Fittingly, Radiohead probably my least favorite act, definitely of the 90s and 2000s, if not of all time. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're not
2: gonna are not gonna get any uh, accolades uh, towards them in this series, I suppose.
1: I guess not, but Reynolds definitely. Uh, you know, I don't. I'd love to read Reynolds panning Radiohead. Maybe Reynolds likes Radiohead. I don't know. It seems like every other critic loves Radiohead, and honestly, I have not given them a fair listen because I just I can't. Um, but they also talk about. And many people love Radiohead, and much respect. There's nothing wrong with with loving Radiohead, just not my cup of tea. But also at the same time, and I think this is a more interesting element, was that hip-hop groups like OutKast... Um, on their Saint go- Onia album, put out "Bombs Over Baghdad," which Matos calls a wild fusion of acid rock guitar and jungle snare skids from *Move and Shadow*, circa 1994. It's also a big FOTEC, The the intelligent drum and bass group from the late 90s to me is the most obvious influence on that. Um, which this was a huge hit in my world. I had no idea until I read this book that it didn't. It barely charted R&B and didn't go pop at all. How did this happen? I thought Outcast was huge. Was Was this? Yeah, case?
2: no, this song was everywhere at the time, as far as I was concerned. Maybe it was just one of those weird ones where it got lots of radio play, but it just didn't just didn't sell. And another another sign that you can't always just look at the charts to like accurately represent what's going on, I suppose, because it was it was as far as I know, like everybody knows Bombs Over Baghdad.
1: Yeah, and maybe it was popular later when they had their next, you know, they put out an album after Stankoni that was even bigger. Um, but yeah, this was so huge. And then in May, uh, March 2001, Missy Elliott, produced by Timberland, puts out Get Your Freak On. That one goes number seven pop, number three R&B. Matos calls it easily identifiable as drum and bass with the A- Asian-British electronic hybrid um, Bangra? Bangla. Ba- Bagra? But,
2: well, uh, <laughs> well, it's deleted from your sheet. So I'm I like, know oh, no. it's
1: like <laughs> I, I forgot, I, I got fancy. You know how this stupid text program erases words? If and I forgot, I just got cocky and thought I could not teach it that word. And then <laughs> it says, No, you can't do that because it's going to erase the word. But it Bagra, and this was a thing like Fatboy Slim's remix of Corner Shop, um, Brimful of Asher is an example of this, but also, uh, t- t- Talik Singh, I think, was was big around this time. There was a lot. Yeah, obviously, England has a big uh, South Asian population, and they were starting to make their presence felt and their traditional musics coming in. And Timbaland definitely had his ears open to that and many other things. Plus, he's bringing in his own unique aspects. And to me, this is really kind of a moment when hip hop, frankly, just stole the grail away from electronic dance music. They copped all of EDM's best stuff and put it into a format that was better. I mean, it was pop songs and dance floors. Is, is that just my imagination? But the way I remember this era is hip-hop owned the dance floors, whether it was Missy Elliott or Outkast or Lil John. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was
2: obviously the mainstream stuff. And, and, you know, we, we talk about how they, they took a bunch of elements from dance music. I think to a certain degree, it's also just a sign of, of the times, as far as the equipment that was being used, it was impossible for, for, you know, dance music got the equipment first and was using a lot of it. And now all of a sudden you've got all this pop music and hip hop that's using the same drum machines and the same bass and the same synths and stuff like that. So it's kind of impossible. I felt for, for other genres of music, like, To me, like all the pops kind of became electronic music because it was all just being produced with similar with similar equipment. And uh, I I don't feel bad about hip hop beating out electronic music or, you know, it's no different than pop. You know, being upset that pop music is bigger than electronic music, even though it's, you know, Madonna's basically taking trance music, taking progressive, taking house. Uh, so, you know, I've never considered it a, a stealing the lunch because I never expected electronic music to get, you know, to even have the blip that it had in 2006 to 2010, uh, before it just became completely consumed by pop music completely. And it's now just pop music.
1: Yeah. And also so much of electronic dance music was influenced by hip hop in the first place. Hip hop, you know, starts in the late seventies and things like hip house that we've talked about ad nauseum, are enormous influences on jungle and, and drum and bass and everything else. Like hip hop got there first in a lot of ways, electro that we're going to be talking about later. This episode is also a hip hop. So they are cousin genres anyway. So totally normal for the you know art forms to cross pollinate. Um, then, then Matos goes back to Detroit to check in on the Detroit electronic music festival. They do the second edition, May 26, 2001. Um, and now he tells us that when it, you know we did the DM, DMF chapter a couple of weeks ago, and at the end of the chapter, he has this you know it's this feel good chapter the Detroit heroes come home, their their friends and family come out, and they have this massively successful event that claimed it had nine hundred thousand attendees. Now Mata says, well, that was grossly overreported. It was probably more like a hundred thousand. <laughs> it all depends on how you count it. Like Electric Daisy Carnival.
2: Uh, When they do like a three day or a five day in Las Vegas or whatever else like that, they every single day, they count all the same people who came in the day before us, a new person. So today over the weekend, they had over a million people. That's because they had like 300,000 people coming in every single day. Plus, you know, a thousand kind of wanderers around. So DEMP is one of those things where, you know, over the course of the entire weekend, over the course of like through the city, you had like a million people kind of like and you, you add it up again and again. So you kind of cheat a little bit. But I wouldn't be surprised if it was, you know, around half a million at least people who kind of, every, you know, a hundred thousand every day, and a, you know, an extra hundred thousand just kind of like around the edges.
1: So they counted audience the way that Google counts web visitors. So yeah, yeah, very sketchily,
2: <laughs> very, very much. However, is best that they can present it to yeah. sponsors.
1: And the and the yeah, and the reward comes in in the form of Ford chipping in four hundred thirty-five thousand uh, dollars to. Um, you know, outfit the thing with, with giant screens and better sound system. But there's always a bummer. Carol Marvin, the City of Detroit person who helped Carl Craig set up the first one, fires Carl Craig just 15 days before the show. So there's a little bit of pushback. People are wearing I support Carl Craig but A little bit. A lot. <laughs> yeah, people, <laughs> banners are marching to the, the whole thing. Um, kind of a big pushback. And also Derek May, um, who... He did end up playing at the last – at the first one, right? And um, then um, – but ends up not playing at this one because of a hailstorm he was supposed to headline, but he ends up playing at the Works Club and plays a five-hour legendary set. So uh, I guess kind of a happy ending there. But let's take a quick sponsor break. and we come back, we'll talk about the reemergence of Electro. All right so having a little dog meet me but um <clears throat> sorry and we're back so the next thing that he goes into is Tommy Sunshine reemerges and Tommy Sunshine's this character that we've uh, Matos has used um He's popped up again and again at Storm Rave and even further. And he was involved with Disco Donnie and, and had moved to Atlanta. Now he makes up with this guy, Felix Solins Jr., who Felix Solins is somebody with impeccable house music credentials. Like when he was 14, he co produces Fantasy Girl with DJ Pierre, the great DJ Pierre who invented Acid House. They put out an album or a single Fantasy Girl as Pierre's P- fantasy club. Um Stalin's meets up with Tommy sunshine and is like, Hey man, come back to Chicago and let's make some records together. And so sunshine moves back to Chicago. Stalin's goal is he wanted to amalgamate all the musical styles from the late seventies leading up to house music, which to him meant craft Giorgio Moroder, Euro disco, new wave and electro. And electro has been kind of this one genre of all the early eighties, dance music things going on that had kind of been a dead end or seen as a dead end by the dance community. I mean, people like two live crew, Kind of kept it alive. It pops up in Ghetto House and Booty House, and and stuff like that. And it's, yeah, electro
2: just got picked apart because uh, you had the the breakbeat element of it just taken wholesale for breakbeat, and then a lot of the synthesizers and stuff like that got pulled out and used in trance and techno. And there was just like electro sitting on its own back in the 80s with Planet Rock and stuff like that. There just wasn't too much left to it that was that hadn't already been stolen by somebody else.
1: Yeah, and it kind of at it had this dynamic through the nineties where it started out corny then got so corny. It was cool. And then just became cool again. And so, um, Felix the house cat, this album he's working on with Tommy sunshine ends up being called kittens and the glitz because he's got like Carolyn Herve, Herve, AKA miss kitten sings on it. Um, and then there's this great story how Tommy sunshine ends up writing like what lyrics for multiple songs does it over the phone which matos is a really clever writer because he talked about how sunshine in the last chapter when sunshine's working at the record store in atlanta how he would have to order the you know make his orders listening to things on speakerphone so now he gets to hear a track on speakerphone or just on the phone and write the lyrics to it over the phone so um kind of Anytime Matos introduces a gun in the first act, somebody's going to get shot, is kind of the, the the rule of thumb. He's not wasting any words. Um, but this album, there's a whole team of people, Tommy Sunshine, Miss Kitten, Dave the Hustler, Harrison Crump, Junior Sanchez, Junior Jack, and Melistar. And it was originally supposed to be a group, a.k.a. Kittens and the Glitz, but the record label wanted Felix the Housecat to have a solo album, so it became a solo album. And Tommy Sunshine doesn't have a publishing deal, so He doesn't get any royalties for the songs he wrote lyrics for, despite like one of them, um, Silver Screen Shower Scene goes top 40 in the UK and is on all kinds of compilations. So I had no idea that he had anything to do with that track. And that's brutal
2: because, yeah, Silver Screen was, was basically like one of the biggest anthems for this whole genre.
1: Yeah. So this is, you know, like Mick Jagger and Keith Richards say – Yeah, our manager, Alan Klein, ripped us off, but he gave us an education in the music business, so we're not bitter about it because, you know, we lost millions and millions and millions, but we went on and learned, and Tommy Sunshine has that same view of, this was my education in the music business, won't happen again. He goes on to become a big-time remixer and producer, and Felix, the house cat, goes on to an even bigger career, like he remixes Madonna's James Bond theme, he collaborates with P. Diddy, and... Matos has a corny joke, and I got to repeat that. Like, why did P Diddy not rebrand himself as P Did E during his fascination with electronic music? But
2: anyway, <laughs> oh, kind of like how Madonna. What, what was her ecstasy album called again? It's like she, oh, she completely. Uh, oh yeah, that uh, Molly yeah, or something. I mean,
1: ah. Yeah, she had the whole "Is Molly in the house?" thing at some big festival that. You know, I'm just yeah. embarrassed to everybody. Yeah, it's anytime you're 50 something year old, uh, you know, GILF shows up at the party talking about drugs. It's like, let's go to a different party.
2: <laughs> yeah, P. Diddy definitely was smart keeping it to uh, keep keeping it in the hip hop scene.
1: Yeah. Less yeah.
2: tumultuous, ironically.
1: Indeed. And then we kind of get to the meat, the narrative meat of the chapter, which is, you know, this is the electro clash era. And if you'll recall, when Simon Reynolds talked about this period, like I said, he, he talked about Breitcourt and the glitch stuff quite a bit. But he was really in, fascinated with the electro clash thing. And there's a lot of factors going into this. One of the factors is that Manhattan just suddenly dies as a hub a scene. I mean, Rudy Giuliani's the mayor and he's cracking down on the clubs The club scene in New York has, by, I mean, you can't argue that it got out of hand and got awful. You know, you had murders and drug overdoses, and you know, you had the Twilo Club had their own private ambulance service that was trying to sneak ODs off to a hospital without the police noticing. Sasha and Digweed were playing endless progressive house sets, and um, but it it deserves to die just for that reason alone. Why does everybody hate him so
2: much? But, you know, um is just a representation of the excess that the that the whole progressive scene represented at the end.
1: Yeah. And and so, you know, the clubs in Manhattan just dry up. Manhattan becomes unaffordable. People start moving out to Brooklyn, which later becomes unaffordable. But at this point in time, Williamsburg in particular was quite affordable. And Williamsburg, I mean. The idea of Williamsburg becoming a gentrified hip center, this is where the Goodfellas guys came from. This is where the Murder Incorporated guys came from back in the 40s. So this is a a historically rough neighborhood that suddenly becomes the place where hipsters from Seattle move to and make uh, electroclash albums. And so um, he starts talking about Larry T is kind of his main character for this section. And, and, you know, Larry T had been involved in the – height of the decadence in the New York club scene in the nineties. He he co-founded disco 2000 with the infamous Michael league. Uh, he co-wrote RuPaul's supermodel. You better work in 1993, but by this, by the turn of the millennium, he's tired of the overblown super clubs and starts playing little electro parties in Brooklyn first at Spencer products house. Um, and then uh, you know, DJ hell of, Germany and we talked about him quite a bit in the Reynolds episode that covered this. He gets interested, uh plays Tia Products Night at the Pyramid. Explain my notes to me. What 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 what, what happened there?
2: No, nah, well, just he came over and checked it out and liked what he saw. So
3: that's
2: okay. all I see. Yeah, I yeah. see.
1: OK, OK. Um, and then and then he puts out Frank Sinatra by Miss Kitten and the Hactor, not to be confused with the Miss Kitten novel we just talked about. But that's on the International DJ Gigolo Records label that DJ Hill has. And then this group comes along, Fisher Spooner the group that best exemplified Larry T's vision for where this stuff could go. And it's Casey Spooner, a singer and Warren Fisher, a synth player. And Fisher's an ex indie rocker. Like he'd been in a, not quite a slant cover band, but a massive, you know, he was way into the indie rock thing, but now all of a sudden there's past this- indie rock into math rock. Yes. He, he stuck with it far enough into math rock. And then, uh, Senses the zeitgeist and goes in this totally different direction. They had met when they were art students in Chicago. They reconnect in New York City in spring of ninety eight. Uh, August twenty fifth, nineteen ninety eight. They they debut at the Astor Place Starbucks. Matos has to say, I'm not kidding about this. <laughs> like, and and immediately the their shows are super attention grabbing and over the top like spinners wearing a human hair suit for their second show um, they recorded a the set at Brooklyn's Rare Book Room emerged their first singles released on John Selway's serotonin label in a very unique deal only had a six month license could only put out a thousand copies of vinyl DJ Hell gets so excited about him even though he doesn't like the record he liked the photos of the shows he had seen so much that he books him to come and and play in Berlin
2: yeah, these so, guys kind of end up being the new rabbit in the moon because they've got this ridiculous show with a whole bunch of uh, costume changes and everything else like that. And if you want to kind of imagine what's going on, it's 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 kind of uh, it's a Rocky Horror Picture Show meets burlesque show meets a drag show. It's like a whole a whole production, and
1: it's it's with very, a punk rock vibe. A uh, very with much punk punk a rock, very indie much rock. confrontational, kind of in your face. And they're changing basically on the edge of the stage. Like they're, they're, they're showing you the strings holding them up. But they're also connected to the art scene in a big way, the big money real-time New York art scene. That They perform at an installation at Gavin Brown's Enterprise. The piece was called Apartment 21 by a guy named Rekrit Tirovania. I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that. Apologies. But this was a thing where the guy put his apartment into uh, – a gallery show and sort of let people live there. People recorded albums. Somebody shot a porno there during the course of the set and Fisher Spooner played um, a set. So this, this is just, this is a very unique time. In yeah.
2: This is, this is kind of New York is developing a, a, another like Warhol era where it's like a mix of, of, of performance art Uh, musical and 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 otherwise like and it's all kind of meeting together in this kind of new fun exciting uh unserious but also very serious scene
1: and now we're going to play our next track which is kind of a non-sequitur because we already talked about this but this is felix to house cat featuring miss kitten doing silver screen shower scene with lyrics by tommy sunshine
3: Speed seduction in the magazine, endless pleasure in a limousine, in the bug shakes, a tambourine, nicotine from a silver screen. Speed seduction in the magazine, endless pleasure in a limousine, in the bug shakes, a tambourine, nicotine from a silver screen.
1: It's Felix, the house cat and Miss Kitten doing silver screen, sour sh- shower scene. Do we need to talk about it anymore? We already people. Started. Yeah,
2: no, it's in, it's in there because we didn't I didn't get it in on the last electro episode. and It's got to be in there, especially with the story about Tommy Sunshine get ripped off. So continue
1: yes yes and so back to fisher spooner you know they get their own show gavin brown the guy who had produced put on the, the apartment 21 art show gives them their own show in march 2000 and you know they're doing uh five nights straight four shows a night have a whole troop of female dancers and you know ridiculous costumes and military boots and corsets and stuff and mathos quote has this quote from elizabeth vincentelli who's the music editor of Time Out new york which is Back when uh, it was a thing back in, in the 90s, um, says Fisher Spooner was playing a dangerous role because as soon as you start associating with the fashion industry, you're fucked. The fashion industry has nothing to lose. And it's not just the fashion industry. It's also the, the serious art industry. So they're basically – I mean – Anytime anybody has done this, the only people in pop music that I can think of that seriously went after the art or had deep connections in the art community, I think of the Velvet Underground with their partnership with Andy Warhol, also their connections in the avant-garde classical scene. Yoko Ono had those same kind of connections with the avant-garde uh, music scene, but she did, and, and with the art world, uh, art gallery artist, both of those Groups triggered, you know, Yoko and the Velvet Underground definitely triggered massive backlashes. I think over time, people definitely came to appreciate Velvet Underground. I mean, all punk and new wave kind of traces back to that. Yoko Ono um, has a lot of people have come to appreciate her music as well, but both of those acts were hated by hippies (laughs) and the music mainstream of the sixties. So it's, it's a dangerous thing. And then yeah, you got to remember
2: that's also out with the old in with the new, as far as the fashion people are concerned. If you're, you know, once, once you're, once you're no longer hip and cool and it's going to happen and it's going to happen sooner than you expect. Then all of a sudden, all of the air gets sucked out from underneath you, and you're being labeled as last year's news. And that's like, yeah, it's just it's bad. It's a bad idea to hook yourself up to a to a scene that's so obsessed with with whatever's on the cutting edge.
1: Yeah, with the transient. But at the same time, you got to applaud their uh, their ambition. And for a hot minute there in the early 2000s, it seemed like Fisher Spooner had squared the circle and united dance music, pop music fashion and the art world which you know it certainly had the people of manhattan talking and then um one of the other characters that that matos talks about is this guy uh, jake shears aka jason Sullards, and he's the guy who had moved to williamsburg from seattle puts together a group called hungry wives has their one hit it's over um and it's an electro number inspired by a dream he had about vogue dancing pioneer kevin aviance um appearing to him and Matos does a really clever thing here where he the song references two-step garage. It says two-step garage. I've never heard of it. It does not exist. And I think we've already talked about how you know we haven't been talking about two-step garage, which Reynolds spent quite a well, I think a whole chapter or two chapters on. It's a big deal in England around this time. doesn't make a big impact in the states. And this is a pretty elegant way for Matos to describe what two-step garage was in sort of an extended parentheses.
2: Yeah, it's like it's like Eminem and that nobody listens to techno discs. It was pretty pretty sweetly done.
1: Yeah, and and um, he also works in Armin van Helden here, who Reynolds, I think, definitely kind of undersold Armin van Helden's importance. And Matos works him in, he calls him House Music Space King, and that he uh, has swiped the idea for, from No Beat Step, Stops from Jungle. So... He, he's incorporating ideas from Jungle, but into a house context. He'd had some big success with remixes in the late 90s. He did Tori Amos's Professional Window and Widow in 1996, Sneaker Picks, Pimps, Spin Spin Sugar in 1997. And he inspired things like uh, Double 99's Rip Groove uh, track 1997, which um, is called Speed Garage. so. so Matos traces Speed Garage back to Armin van Helden and, and that style of house. Then talks about how London DJs would play New York Garage records like Mark MK Kinshin's remixes like The Nightcrawler's Push the Feelings On from 1992. And then Todd, Todd Edwards comes along, and Reynolds talked about him as well. Matos calls him MK's great successor, who turned Kinshin's cut-up technique baroque, and, and into a complex series of crosshatch samples, creating uncanny patterns, and it's a lot like Kanye West was definitely paying attention to stuff like this, because Kanye's kind of the first hip hop producer who would sample things, even if they had a vocal bit in it, and then kind of use those Jay Dillard did this too, would use these random vocal things to create new statements, and so you know Todd Edwards is is playing with this stuff. Daft Punk cites him as a big inspiration and has him co-produced a track. But ultimately, this is just a way for Matos to mention Two-Step Garage and Speed Garage and point out that it didn't really have a big impact in the States. Yeah, it's like a little mention of, of of that and a little mention of kind of how
2: house music is still like kind of doing interesting and, and uh, important things while while not having to devote a whole chapter to it.
1: Yeah, and we could also mention Circuit House and Tribal House is something that's going on around the same time that Matos um, basically had to cut out of the narrative for reasons of space. And we did a whole episode on Circuit House. So think of that when you think about this era. That's part of the mix, too, although that's happening um, more so in gay bars and also more so in places like Miami and San Francisco. It's not – I, th- I think that's kind of something where you're missing the Manhattan club scene. If the Manhattan club scene had been super healthy, I think Circuit House would have been much bigger in New York around this time. Anyway, then he gets back into talking about this reverse migration from Manhattan to Williamsburg, talking about how Spooner, um, Casey Spooner moved from Man- Manhattan out there in of 2001, that there's this random cowboy bar in Williamsburg called Lux, and Larry T uh, and his partner product, host their Berliniumsberg parties there on Saturdays expense that goes so well they also start hosting Friday night parties they call mutants it's fundamentally a gay pickup bar but a ton of other seamsters that aren't into that are coming out for the music and you know this is happening at the same time as like Twilo the mega club had closed permanently in May 2001 and then they get the idea let's put on a festival they they and it's the electroclash festival and Larry T coins that term electroclash which was controversial at the time and does it really describe a, a unique genre or is this just an electro revival
2: uh, I mean, yeah, electro clash was pretty uh, was pretty fresh and new. You can't you can't compare the electro that was coming out in the early '80s to what was going on in the early 2000s. I feel like there was too much too many other things going on at the same time in the new electro clash. I feel like electro clash captured that fact that it was electro plus and if that plus was uh indie rock or if that plus was punk or if that plus was you know techno uh which it often was with a lot of the stuff that dj hell was doing uh then all the better and i know that everybody hates the name electro clash or everybody at the time everybody who was involved in the scene that, that just didn't want to get sucked into a, a subgenre of a subgenre they hated the name electro clash it stuck mm-hmm. uh so everybody's everybody had to deal with
1: it yeah, and another big difference is the electro clash is predominantly white artists coming from these really privileged spaces. I mean, the New York art world and fashion world, and you know Manhattan Williamsburg, sort of just a very different perspective. Also, the gay scene is making a big making its presence felt. So many of the of the key stars of this are. Um, you know, coming right out of the, the gay club scene and bringing that And you're that finally stuff.
2: starting to see a lot of uh, lesbian artists getting uh, top billing and attention as well, which I think it was a big part of uh, Electro Clash was just the fact that it was one of the first uh, kind of big electronic music uh, genres where the doors were completely wide open to women uh, to to
1: take the lead and to do their own things. And speaking of women doing their own things, I'm going to play our next track. This is Peaches. Fuck the pain away. Yeah, this whole episode's going to be marked explicit because we're doing Peaches. She like you wanna be calling me all the
0: time. like blondie check out my Chrissy behind and find all the time. Looks like some
3: peaches. What else is in the teaches of peaches' home? What? Fuck the pain away. Fuck the pain away. Fuck the pain away.
1: And that was the infamous Peaches doing Fuck the pain away.
3: Tell
2: us about Peaches and why you picked this track. Oh, Peaches is just one of those quintessential electroclash artists. She's so rude and she's so over the top. It it captures the snark, uh, but the earnestness and the horniness of of that entire era and period.
1: Yeah, and this is sort of the uptown fancy version of what was going on at Woodstock 99. There was just something going on around the turn of the millennium where everybody turned the horny dial up to about 10 and... You know, and then, and then mayhem ensues. But back to the Electro Clash festival. It's not just at Lux in, in Brooklyn. There's also um, shows at Exit, which is in Manhattan on West 56th Street. Also Webster Hall, which is a big venue. Uh, over, spread over multiple days: October 10th, October 13th. Um, like like I said, there's immediate backlash. I mean, people and, and Larry T's promoting it, putting the Electro Clash brand name out there all over the city and people are putting you know somebody puts up a sign back Electroclash could become the next grunge don't let buzzwords and marketing destroy the music you love and yeah by this point in the late 90s everybody had seen what happened like when grunge first happened people were like oh yeah we won and as if it was a good thing but very quickly people sort of realized that popularizing underground scenes inevitably means losing all the things that people liked about the underground scenes and watching people you didn't like take them over and become yucky so people are kind of pre-ready for that dj hell is definitely not amused and then even acts that are playing at the festival like adult with a period at the end from detroit they played the webster hall night with peaches and chicks on speed and they're still bitter that they're called an electroclash group he's like look we paid the Played. You don't play the Puckle Pop Fest in Belgium and the next thing you know, you're considered Puckle Pop for the rest of your life. Like, look, all we did was play a show and we cannot get this branding off of us. So yeah like,
2: like we yeah say. i mean it was just unfortunate because as we mentioned earlier like once something goes out of fashion it's it's hard to 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 kind of keep that aura of cool around it and a lot of these groups went down in flames with electro clash once it's 15 minutes of fame were up so they they were they were right to not want to be pigeonholed and they they were right to to be upset over the fact that they kind of got dragged dragged down on that sinking ship in the end
1: yeah and and Got more material left in this chapter than we can cover, so I'm going to kind of rush through it. He, he Malto's talks about the summer tours that were going on. Moby puts out his own Area One tour. MCT Management had booked his previous packages. This time, it's all Moby. Um, he gets Paul Oakenfold, The Orb, Carl Cox, Outcast, Incubus, the the new metal group, a, a new metal aligned group, New Order, the old school new wave group, Nelly Furtado, and The Roots. So mix of hip hop, tons of, you know, Oakenfold and The Orb, kind of stock rave acts. This, this tour actually made money, which was a rarity in 2001. Concert sales were down 12% from 2000 for the first half of the year. Obviously, the second half of the year was a disaster after 9-11. But you had multiple big shows like Mecca, coming out of Toronto and Creamfields coming out of the UK that were supposed to be doing big, ambitious tours that totally collapsed. Mecca's 10-city tour canceled three days before their first show. Creamfields was supposed to be doing two big, massive UK-style raves, one on the West Coast, one on the East Coast, had to cancel the both things. The Long Island show only sold 6% of the tickets. Kurt X out in Wisconsin um, basically throws in the towel, has a 2001 show, He'd had bad shows in 1999, 2000 because of equipment theft. He tries to do a Burning Man replica in 2001, but it burns up early. There's a brawl with some bikers in the strip club during the fest, and he just basically throws it, throws in the towel. And after um, there's a fundraiser, a regroup fundraiser November 2002. They're trying to raise funds to renovate the Racine, Wisconsin's Uptown Theater, and that gets raided by the police. Am I saying Racine right? Is that how people say that? Yeah, I think it's Racine. 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 Okay. But that gets raided by the police, and so Aki's had seen what happened to Disco X had seen what happened at Disco Donnie and just threw in the towel.
2: Yeah, the rape scene was just in a, such a such a bad spot. You weren't drawing from the general population anymore. You had to make do with whatever existing kind of scene was there, and that was in a constant state of flux and shrinkage and turning over and, and just general melting down. So you know uh, there was no longer this communal vibe that you could rely on to make everything work because it became very doggy dog and very dark.
1: Yeah, and Steph tells us it's racing, so racing in Wisconsin, and then Matos uses Doc Martin, who's a DJ we've been talking about, it came from San Francisco down to LA or vice versa, been around the scene. He uses him to tell the story of 9/11. He had been Doc Martin had been having a very good 2001, um, had a essential mix compilation put out on him by BBC Radio One, uh, celebrated uh, the anniversary of his residency at this. Massive club in London called Fabric, and this is a question I had for you. It says that it avoided trance and hard house, which were the big club sounds at the time. So what were they playing at Fabric if not trance and hard house?
2: Oh, they were playing they were playing house, house of all all varieties. Oh. So hard house is kind of the more donkey trance version. It's got a really hard kicks and everything else like that. So they're basically saying they're ignoring all the underground hard, hardcore rave stuff, uh, and they were basically sticking with with house and maybe a little bit of tech house.
1: Okay. And then, anyway, Doc Martin was flying from Sacramento to New York City on September 11th. He was at the next one gate over from one of the planes that hit um, the Twin Towers. And then, you know, he gets on his flight, goes to sleep, wakes up in their landing in Kansas and ends up never making it to Sacramento for that thing. And he was almost on Flight 93, which was the flight where the passengers rebelled against the terrorists and, and crashed into the ground. So 9-11 happens in the middle of this chapter and, and disrupts everything. But then Matos gets into a little thing about Vice Magazine, another just awful relic from this era. I mean, just listen to the names as I go through this. So this is what Matos calls Hipsterville's House Organ. It's hard to imagine, but Vice Magazine was actually hip at the time. It promulgated a new aesthetic, which Matos calls slickly produced cheap provocation. The infamous Terry Richardson was – His starkly lit perv shots set the aesthetic. And Richardson is like the king of Me Too problems and just – Booking complete, models to sleep yeah. with them and, and brain,
2: it, everything that was wrong set. with kind of the uh, the, the, uh, the the fashion uh, power dynamics that would go on where you basically had all of these models who were expected to do whatever you told them to because you had to otherwise you would be excommunicated from, from the entire scene. So Terry Richardson was the big uh, predator right kind of in the middle of, of that greasy uh, kind of hipster uh, fashion scene.
1: Yeah, if Harvey Weinstein was a fashion photographer, he'd beat Terry Richardson. And it was obvious at the time that Terry Richardson was gross and and awful, but there it was. It was massively popular. And then you had Ryan McGinley doing what Matos elegantly calls his looking for America with my rich, naked, junkie friends scenarios that would be in these photo shoots. It's uh, perfect. Uh, And then Gavin McGinnis, who's now more famous for having founded the Proud Boys fascist militia, he was doing these do's and don'ts, sort of. They swiped the old format from National Lampoon's old, um, you know, fashion do's and don'ts, and Gavin McInnes is is laying down the law on what's hip and cool. So, uh, one of the many problems with this era, it's decadent, and with decadence comes fascism and yuck. So,
2: yeah. that's Yeah, it was all about radical self-expression rather than group unity and outrageous twat behavior was was encouraged. And it was actually pretty fun, so long as everyone was clever enough to pull it off. And obviously, many weren't.
1: And, yes. it, got old, and it got old fast. And that it did. That it did. Um, then he checks in on Tommy Sunshine, who starts an sweat night at Chicago at Red Dog, later, later moves to the smart bar and renames it Degeneration um he he's uh even makes it on the cover of the december 2001 issue and of what i don't know my notes again apologies i'm just off this week um but uh the the thing the, the moral of the story is that cocaine is now the big drug on the scene instead of ecstasy there's a bar in williamsburg called cokey's where the hipsters would go and buy their cocaine it's just like how does this stuff um get away but uh, then, then he checks back in on the Electro Clash Festival that the the thing's such a big hit that the guestless line at the exit show on October 10th, the guestless line went around the block. So the main thing is way around the block. And um, there's it was Sam Valenti the fourth passes out is pass out promos of his Tangent 2000 Disco Nouveau comp on his Ghostly International label, and he says there was a faint echo of really interesting lost music that was coming back into view. Nowadays it seems kind of obvious, but at the time it had a, it was a brush of fresh air. And that's true. They're bringing back this stuff from the early 80s that people had kind of overlooked and, and, and redoing it. And people like Spencer Product is performing as Prance, rewriting Prince songs. And this is the context in which Peaches is the breakout star of the Electrocrash Festival, basically because she's putting on a really passionate stage show Plus all the sex stuff that's totally over the top.
2: Yeah, you've got a whole bunch of artists. You watch any electro clash documentary, and you see uh, you see artists like my robot friend, who's somebody like just basically dressed up in a a, what was the name of that South Park uh, costume that Cartman used to wear. And anyways it's almost like that yeah. like everybody has their ridiculous gimmick uh and and everybody's putting out this real kind of speak and spell electro stuff and uh, having a lot of fun doing it you know you go back and listen to it, it might not hold up that well but there is no doubt people are having a lot of fun
1: yeah absolutely and it also creates because it's in manhattan and because you had this media scene still at the time it creates this music industry, feeding frenzy. And um, you get these two characters. We've talked about them before, James Murphy and Tim Goldsworthy. Uh, We last saw them. Let's see. Murphy was an indie rock drummer from Jersey and Goldsworthy had co-founded Mo Wax Records, the Acid Tracks uh, or Jazz, Acid Jazz. Yeah. The Acid Jazz label um, from the UK. And they um, start this record, DFA Records. And as Mato says, it's, younger indie kids who didn't reject dj culture they just resurrected it on their own terms presaging the end of the 2000s when the mass pop audience is going to do the same thing so you've got this whole generation of indie kids indie rocker kids who have grown up on dance music and are cool with it and so their first big record is the rapture's house of jealous lovers and this is this is the rock track that makes the dance floors again. This is um, you know, and, and they talk about the way that the DFA guys recalibrated the Rapture's goals. So the Rapture was a band that started with ambitions like, hey, maybe we could open for Fugazi at one of their five dollar shows, all ages shows. And DFA is like, no, you could be the next cure, which doesn't quite happen. But having a B mix, a B-side remixed by Marvin Geist of Metro Area got the rock record on the dance shops and got DJs willing to play it. And Mato says, seemingly all 20,000 people who bought Jealous Lover ended up buying drum machines or becoming DJs. And then Murphy, the indie rock drummer, becomes James Murphy from the LCD sound system they put out Losing My Edge in 2002. Is LCD sound system part of our story or?
2: Uh, well, I mean, I'd say that they're the perfect
1: embodiment
2: of electronic music and and indie indie dance music or indie rock music kind of fusing into this new thing that everybody loves. Everybody can enjoy LCD sound system.
1: <laughs> I never have, but I'm not holding it against them. I never really tried that hard, but. I couldn't even finish the documentary about him. But so yeah, LCD Sound System, which even I know was a big deal. And then he ins- wraps the chapter with um, Fisher Spooners come up and so so far they're just the hype. that the darlings of the pop world, the dance world, the fashion world, the art world. They put out their single "Emerge" three times with three different labels. Ministry of Sound, the London mega club is. They started an American record label. They've hired away DJ DB and Andrew Goldstone from F111, which was Warner Brothers' dance imprint. Um, they're planning to reissue the number one album, which Fisher Spooner had put out independently itself. But then there's a bidding war with other labels after the Electro Clash festival, Re- results in all kind of rock star nonsense like Spooner flies the Concord to the UK and back for a meeting. Um, the final deal gave Fisher Spooner veto power over their US label, and the net effect of that was they vetoed so many options that by the time Capital puts out the album in America, the UK version was a year old, and it had been three years since the album had come out independently. They got a $2 million advance supposedly.
2: Reportedly, yes. They they, they seem to say, they, they're one of the many artists who say, like I uh, we didn't see any of
1: that. <laughs> yeah. That I, if somebody got $2 million, it wasn't me. That's Casey Spooner's line. Um, that ends up, though, killing. They had a great deal with Each Projects, which was an art group that had them on a stipend. They were performing in the galleries. Because of this size of this label deal, or whatever, that deal got killed. Labels start crashing around this time. This is the dot com bust and the big reception. Ministry of Sound shutters their U.S. office almost as soon as they opened it. And then Matos drops the bond into the chapter. On April 28, 2003, Apple announces the iTunes Music Store. So, dun, dun, dun. yeah,
2: the MP3s old... are here to stay, baby. They've gone <laughs> yep. legal.
1: Yeah, sorry, American or worldwide record industry. The CD era of profiteering is over. And so, on that happy note, we're going to end our Electro Class chapter. And next time when we come back, we're going to be talking about. Daft Punk at Coachella in 2006. So the big comeback of EDM is next for Ryan Harkness. I'm Nate Wilcox. We've been discussing underground is massive. How electronic dance music conquered America by Michelangelo Matos.
0: Follow the let It roll podcast on Twitter at let it roll and check out our website at let next week. Ryan and Nate talk about Daft Punk's breakthrough performance at Coachella 2006 and the beginning of electronic dance music's belated rise to the top of American pop. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com.